Welcome to the Well Season Librarian. This is season two, episode three. Today I'm talking to Carolyn Jung, the food gal, and I'm so completely honored and starstruck to talk to Carolyn. It's been a wonderful conversation, and I've had so much fun getting to talk to her and discuss food and food writing with her. Carolyn Jung is an award-winning food and wine writer, and she's based here in San Francisco Bay Area, so she's a local. She's a recipient of so many awards, including the James Beard Award for feature writing about restaurants and chefs. She's a Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism Award for Excellence for diversity writing, an award from the American Association of Sunday and Features Editors, and numerous first-place honors from the Association of Food Journalists and the Peninsula Press Club. In 2015, she was named an IACP finalist for narrative food writing. She has her first cookbook, San Francisco Chef's Table by Lions Press, published in 2013, and her second cookbook, East Bay Cooks by Figure One Publishing, debuted in September 2019. I recommend it highly. It's a wonderful cookbook. She has created foodgal.com, a food and wine blog that you can look at now. It's in the links. And it features interviews with celebrated chefs, reviews of intriguing cookbooks and products, and scoop on new restaurants, irresistible recipes, and her singular take on how food touches every aspect of our lives. I think you're going to love this interview. The talk was very insightful and very informative, and I just uh, loved every minute of it. I really um, enjoy being a podcaster, and this is one of those times that just makes me so happy to do this. Um, I think you'll enjoy it as well. Without further ado, Carolyn Jung, the food gal. Welcome to the Well Seasoned Librarian podcast. Today, I'm very honored to have award-winning food and wine writer, Carolyn Jung, and who also has the food gal website. Thank you, Carolyn, for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. So I wanted to ask you to start, um, you have a very accomplished career and, you know, looking at your bio, there's so much information here about all the different things you've done as a writer. How did you get started with food writing and working in journalism? Well, I am one of those kids who grew up always loving to read and write. Um, though I wasn't necessarily sure what I was going to do with that um, as I went into high school and college. Um, so when I was in high school, and I'm probably dating myself here, but Proposition 13 passed, yes. which cut taxes to the schools. Yeah. And the high school I was at, Lowell High School in San Francisco, woohoo! Um, yeah. They cut a lot of classes, a lot of teachers, and I was going into my senior year, and I had to take an English class. And my only two choices of classes that I hadn't already taken were critical thinking and journalism. So up until that point, I had written a lot of essays, creative writing, but never written in sort of newspaper style. That wasn't even sort of on my radar, even though I was an avid reader. Um, and then all I remembered was my friends always told me, teacher for critical thinking, because he's terrible. So I thought, okay, well, that leaves journalism. So I signed up for it. And I just fell in love with it, because it, uh, it seemed like a very practical way to attempt to try and have a career involving writing. 
and I got on my school paper the semester after that and then my first day on campus at San Francisco State where I had declared myself an English major I changed it to journalism so I, uh, I actually started on the news side as so many of us do um, I was uh, after interning at the Boston Globe and at the Portland Oregonian I landed my first job out of college full-time on staff at the Sun Sentinel in Fort Lauderdale and like many young reporters there were quite a few of us from all over the country. We covered many city council meetings, many planning commission meetings, many festivals on the weekend. And I was lucky enough, I always knew I wanted to come back to California. So I would go visit my parents every summer and pepper every newspaper in the area with my resume and try and snag interviews. And finally the Mercury News came calling. So that's how I moved back to the Bay Area and um, again, started over covering city government and then um, actually was on their initial race and demographics team, which covered um, a lot of the communities in our area that otherwise probably wouldn't have gotten the spotlight on them otherwise. And that was very gratifying to sort of be able to bring issues to light that could have major changes that could affect not only this community, but individuals as well. And um, while I was doing that, our food editor at the paper went on maternity leave and decided not to come back. And I don't know if people know, but those kind of jobs are kind of few and far between. Oh, Usually yeah. there's one person and even fewer now, uh, given the yeah. climate of, of journalism these days. Um, on the staff who, who covers food and wine and dining. So I actually looked at the uh, announcement on the bulletin board and thought, oh, that could be kind of fun. But I was honestly, I was happy doing what I was doing. Right. And I was not one of these people who always dreamed of writing about food. I loved food. I loved cooking ever since I was a kid, but it was not something I ever imagined doing. So a good friend of mine who had covered a lot of beats at the paper, sports, news, she was then um, freelancing as a food writer um, on the section. She gave me the best piece of advice, which was, she told me, go home tonight, take a pad of paper and a pencil, divide it in half and give yourself one minute to come up with story ideas on your own beat. And then give yourself another minute to come up with story ideas on the food beat. And shockingly enough, the list I came up on my own beat was a couple inches long. And the one on the food beat was just like dozens and dozens. And that wow. sort of gave me the answer that, wow, maybe I should be doing this. And it was probably the best decision I ever made in my career. I mean, how, how often do we get to do something for a living that was a passion or a hobby that we loved just to begin with. And um, I always tell people that when you're on news side, a lot of times people don't want to talk to you. The police dodge your calls, lawyers don't want to return uh, your emails. But when you are on the food beat, everyone wants to talk about food. That's a nice change. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're someone who knows the pulse of the restaurant industry in the Bay Area. How has the quarantine affected the food industry 
and the chefs that you know, what are they saying about what's going on? Well, I mean, I, I can't imagine a more challenging time that the industry has ever faced than now. Um, I think anyone who's um, lived through this knows that during the early parts of the pandemic, restaurants suffered so much in having to close down their indoor dining um, and revert to takeout, um, which, you know, brings in some money, but not to the extent that indoor dining did. And then even as some places were lucky enough to either build parklets or they had a, a patio and they could offer outdoor dining, um, that definitely helps. But again, a super challenging time, especially because it was um, not necessarily guarantee that the restaurant's landlords were gonna be willing to work with them. Some were really good. I've heard um, from many restaurateurs who said you know, their landlords gave them a break on their rent or said, you will work this out later. We know you're going through a hard time. Um, yet there were others who said, nope, you know, I need that money. You, you need to pay up every month. Uh, so you know, imagine if you were a homeowner and you're trying to pay your mortgage and you've, your hours on your job have been cut back and you're struggling to, to make those payments each month. So same thing for restaurants. And even now it's, it's gotten better, of course, because indoor dining has opened, but now we have the Delta variant. And I think everyone is super scared that it may shut down indoor dining again because it's so much more contagious. And yes, there are requirements or recommendations to put your mask on indoors, but how can you wear a mask if you're dining inside? You know, it's gonna be off and on or it's gonna be off the whole time. And I think compounding that issue is um, that restaurateurs are just sort of at a loss of what to do next because as you probably read in the news, so many of them are starting to institute vaccination mandates for people yes. who dine indoors. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's a risky proposition because obviously they will probably lose some business from people who find that overreaching or people who say that they don't want to dine in a place that does that kind of uh, mandate. Yeah. Um, but of course, there are other people, um, and I'll go on record and say myself, I'm vaccinated, and it gives me great comfort to know that if I walk into a place, people are all masked, or I know that they are all vaccinated. That now, that being said, though, I mean, I, I've had conversations um, recently with some chefs who they are debating this very seriously, but, you know, they wonder, well, we're already short-staffed. Right. I've talk to my staff were 80 90 percent vaccinated but there are holdouts and what do i do i can't i can't afford to lose these people because i don't know if i'll be able to hire to replace them yeah um, so it's it's very much a, a, a no-win situation i think yeah i mean i think restaurants from what i've read and what i've known from personal experience are like a family and you can't mm -hmm. just like get rid of people and get the you can't get the same people back often and, and it's it's just it would be really hard to rebuild it would be very frustrating i i can't I think imagine. yeah if you i i look at my facebook feed and every day i see 
restaurants or chefs saying, hey, we're hiring, or um, we, we are looking for a dishwasher, we're looking for a line cook. Um, even some places where I go dine outside or I get takeout, I see big posters on the windows saying, hiring for this position at this price with these benefits. And everybody is just very hurting for staff. And you know that's also a very complicated situation because everyone assumes that, oh, it's because unemployment benefits are still being so given out and they're so generous. Um, and you know, that could, there could be some truth to that, but you can't necessarily blame people for that because, no. you know, you're a line cook making what, $15 an hour and you can't live on that in the Bay Area. And no. if this is a moment in time where you can provide for your family with more generous unemployment benefits, why wouldn't you? I mean, I, I don't know if there's any of us who would turn that down, right? Yeah. So the other, the other um, uh, sticking point in this, of course, too, is a lot of people have moved out of the Bay Area. A lot of people who yeah. work in hospitality are moving to Austin or to Portland, Oregon, places that are cheaper to live. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I've read accounts in other uh, media like the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, that a lot, of, a lot of people also in hospitality have gone into different industries that pay more. Um, I think there was um, an anecdote in a journal story talking about a bartender who is now a bank teller and he makes more money, he's got benefits, and he realized that he's so used to dealing with the public and he does it in a, in a very convivial way that it automatically translates so easily to dealing with the public at the bank. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't think people realize how punishing working in a restaurant could be. And it always makes me mad when I hear people argue that people that work in restaurants shouldn't make more. I think there was the, uh, even in the fast food industry, people, bemoan people making more money, but it's hard work. And oftentimes you don't have benefits. You know, if you're sick, you got to go to work. You can't, you can't screw over your team if you're sick and not go to work because if they're short staffed, they can't run the restaurant. So I don't exactly. know. I think a lot of restaurateurs are saying this is a reckoning for the public to realize that prices are going to have to go up on menus and that that's just uh, an accepted fact that we all have to get used to yeah. um, because we're not necessarily paying the true cost of things now and and you yeah. look at what restaurants the the costs they have incurred over the past year and a half that are out of the norm you know all the ppe that they had to buy the barriers they had to construct the parklets um it's it's just major costs and um i'm you know i'm sort of like you i think um you know I, all of us like to get a deal all of us want to yeah. feel like um, we're not being overcharged but um, when you think about what goes into the meal that you're sitting down to and it's not just the food on your plate it's the ambiance it's the people waiting on you it's the people who are cleaning up after you sweeping the floors it's the electricity in the restaurant the air conditioning all of that costs something and we need to realize that um, um, if we want people to have a healthier, more productive life, especially in the Bay Area, 
that um, you know certain things need to be done and, and perhaps that is yeah increasing wages and for the public to realize yeah we're gonna have to pay more um, you yeah. know I sometimes I I see a lot of times when I, I post a lot on pastries and other things that I eat and and find in my um, scouting around the Bay Area and sometimes I'll post a picture of a pastry and it's like five or six dollars let's say and someone will inevitably say oh my god that's too expensive and i always write back you know i myself love to bake but there is no way that i could make this and if i even attempted to do it it would take all day and do i think it's worth five or six dollars for me to pay for this instead rather than trying to attempt it myself and i know i will fail it won't come even close to whatever i purchase it's totally worth it to me you know someone spent how many years perfecting their craft to make this what it is and you you yourself i mean you're paying for the benefits of that for that person's training and knowledge and expertise I, i think it too like restaurants become part of our lives and we take them for granted and I think it's one of those you don't really, you don't appreciate something until it's gone. And like my parents have restaurants where they live in San Diego that are family institutions. Mm-hmm. They've been going to them for 30, to, 30 years or more. And, and they, they just mention it casually like it's a part of the family. For that to be removed, that's like a loss. That's like losing a member of your family. It's not. I think a lot of us took it for granted. And Absolutely. then uh, like, just myself, I know that the first time I dined outside for the first time after a year, over a year, um, and that was in June, uh, my husband and I were just remarking like, wow, this just feels so nice. You know, yeah. you're getting, we were used to getting takeout during the pandemic and to enjoy something hot or yeah. something fried that was still crispy the way it should be, yeah. or to be able to talk to a server about a dish or a sommelier about, well, what do you think about this wine? You, you find that, wow, you really did miss it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I miss it. And we fantasize about going to restaurants. And we're starting to go back, but it's not like it was. And I, I, I'm afraid to look and see if some restaurants are still there or not that I miss. There's a lot of restaurants in Alameda I'm like wanting to go back to, but I, I can't take it for granted that they're still there. And that's scary to me because... They're wonderful restaurants. I mean, God, if you have a restaurant you love so much, like Spisacomer in Alameda, I freaking love that place. Like that's one of my favorite restaurants in the world. If I were to look and see it was gone, that's that's horrible. That's a horrible loss. And a lot of places have closed. Yeah. Is there any way the average person can help restaurants? I mean, in, in, in your mind, is there anything you could think of that we could do that would help out? I would say just continue to patronize them as often as you can within your means um, because every dollar counts, whether it's takeout or dining outside or getting cocktails to go, buying gift cards for your friends for their birthdays or anniversaries, all that adds up. And especially now um, after most restaurants probably have not made a profit or made very little profit in the past year and a half, um, it goes a long way. I've noticed changes in um, media over the past 20 years. And I've worked in newspapers myself and worked with magazines doing ads. And so I, 
I've seen a lot of change, and especially like as you said in newspapers, the the shrinkage on staffs is is staggering. Just contacting a newspaper to find out, you know, something is really difficult because you know you, there's a lot of turnover and sometimes people don't mm -hmm. even know who works there. What have you in magazines? We've been seeing Matt, especially food magazines. When I go to a, a newsstand now, I used to see millions of food magazines, and now it's just you know a few. What is your perception? Um, as a food writer, how the food industry, food writing industry has changed over the last few years? Well, definitely like what you said, there has been an enormous contraction of the titles that are available now. Um, I think that just echoes also what's been happening in print with so many newspapers, especially the smaller regional ones, just disappearing or going down to the most minimal of staffs. So it's, it's, it's a, for me, I, you know, coming from both newspapers and now writing for magazines too, it's a scary time because um, when you think about all that has been lost, um, the coverage, um, and then you take it for granted that well, how am I going to find out what the city council is meeting on if I don't go there? If right. there's no reporter there who's acting as my eyes and ears and helping me sort of understand the ramifications of what they just voted on. Um, same thing, I, you know, I hear this a lot from people too who said, oh, they, I think people said probably 10 years ago, oh, cookbooks nobody's going to want those in a couple of years because everything's online everybody's blogging about everything and yet a couple of years ago i know publishers are saying that that didn't turn out to be necessarily true because anyone can put anything up online but most people want a source that they can trust somehow either someone who's very knowledgeable maybe a chef that they are have heard of and respect or a magazine that they know is gonna vet things and test things. So you don't wanna just sort of type into Google and come up with a million responses and try and figure out on your own, well, I wanna make this cake. Should I make this one, this one, this one? The recipes all are a little bit different. How do I know which one to make? Right. And, and a lot of, um, it used to be, I think, sort of the Wild West out there with blogs, but yeah. So many have fallen by the wayside now, even very prominent ones that um, everybody used to know seven, eight years ago. They've either stopped or they've um, been sold to someone else, or they're just sort of, you know, not, you just don't hear about them anymore. So I think that with food magazines and cookbooks, there's still very much love by a lot of people. And I hope that they continue because they, they serve a very valuable resource for all of us. And um, what do we do to sort of make that happen? I guess we just, we continue to subscribe and we, again, try and remember that just because we get a lot of our news for free now, doesn't mean the news itself is free. No. Somebody had to put that recipe together. Somebody had to go write that story. Somebody had to go interview the chefs or the cookbook writer in order to craft a story to go along with this. 
and we just yeah again have to realize that there are all these underlying costs to what we perceive as free and that we sort of feel entitled to getting for free now because we're so used to it yeah but we pay the price too because i mean i think that there are a lot of people that are almost like writing interns that are doing all this stuff for free for publications and it doesn't necessarily mean like like I do writing for medium, but I, that's not the same quality as somebody who's writing for Xavier or Gourmet or something like that. So I don't know, like you, I guess like you get what you pay for in many ways. Like you want yeah, to get a magazine because it's, it's really, it's got an editor, it's being vetted. The person's a professional. I'd rather read something, no, not, not to knock what I do on medium, but like I would rather read something from a magazine if I want something that's the real deal. The stuff on medium is nice, but it's people like me who are practicing. It's not necessarily. I mean, some of it's really good stuff. Mark Bittman has a thing on uh, Medium. It's, it's quality. So it's not all bad, but I mean, I don't know. I, I'm old school. I like, I like the stuff in print. You know, I like I'm old school too. I still like to hold it in my hand and turn the page. <laughs> yeah. Well, like cookbooks too. I mean, like I got a cookbook the other day at Snoop Dogg's cookbook and it's by Chronicle. It's really lovely. It's a really lovely little cookbook and I really liked it. And when I get a Chronicle cookbook, they do such a good job and it's always such a thing of joy to hold it in my hands and go through it slowly. I just, I love mm -hmm. that. You ghostwrite recipes for authors and develop recipes for publications. What are some of the methods you go to when you develop a recipe? What kind of research do you do for it? Um, it well, it depends if I'm coming up recipes on my own or if I'm like say the cookbooks that I've done where I'm taking a chef's recipe and trying to edit it and make sure that it works. Um, for my own, I um, sometimes I've done sponsorships with um, products like the Sweet Potato Commission or something yeah. or a cheese company. And I kind of think about, well, when, when is this recipe running? Uh, what season? What are the produce items that are in season at the same time. How can I combine this in a fun way that is maybe a little bit different in some way so that it's attractive to people and catches their eyes and makes them stand up and take up notice, take notice of it a little bit more than just the same iteration of a dish that's already out there a hundred times over. Um, and then I, um, just kind of think, well, how do I, if it's, do I want to do a dish that's requires baking or do I want to do a savory dish? Um, so all those things kind of come into mind and also depending on um, what, the, what the client might want, do they want something super easy that will appeal to everyone geographically yeah. around the country? Is it uh, something that they want that's a little bit more out of the norm, a little more modern or something a little more classic. And then when I'm looking at chef recipes, um, say for a cookbook that I work on, I look to see, well, is this, somewhat, is this something that a home cook can actually make? Um, if it is a more complex, recipe is it something that a pretty proficient cook at home can make not just a basic or beginner cook but somebody who has some good cooking skills and, and knows their way around the kitchen 
Is it a dish that is very representative of the restaurant? Is it something that really gives people an indication of the style of the place, even if they've never heard of it or gone to it? Does it tell something about them in some unique way? And then of course, testing it to make sure it absolutely works. Yeah, I've read a few cookbooks by restaurants that I felt kind of failed to hit the mark. And that goes to my second question, because like I think many people assume that a chef can just put out a, a cookbook, but I don't think it's a, it doesn't seem like a really fair generalization to, to just say that somebody's a chef, of course they can write a cookbook because it doesn't always translate well. What has your experience been with that? Well, the cookbooks I've done have all sort of been compendiums of I'd say 30 to 40 restaurants or chefs per book. And I remember one pastry chef who was just looking at me like, I can't believe you do this with so many chefs. It's like herding wild cats. And I said, yeah, it is kind of like that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's usually a mix. I mean, I think it's really unfair to expect a chef to be able to write a cookbook in full or a recipe as detailed and as perfect um, so that it you know he want he or she would never need an editor that's asking way more than one would ever expect i mean it, it would be kind of like asking you or i well you like to cook at home you can make a michelin dish right so no it's not the same no. so there it, it sort of runs the gamut i've had chefs who turn in recipes that look like they just came out of a cookbook. I mean, they're perfect. They read really well. They work exactly like they say. They're, there's nothing missing. I mean, they tell you exactly how long something will take or how long to sear something on the stovetop before you transfer it to something else or the exact measurements of every ingredient. I mean, that is kind of rare because let's face it, most of us, professional or amateur don't cook that way we throw in a handful of this we have a pinch of that and we don't really measure um my own mom did that and you know probably everyone's mom did that and when you're trying to recreate a home recipe it drives you nuts because it's like it doesn't taste quite the same it's like well i just add this and that and you have no idea how much so um that's where you need an editor or writer to really work with the chef and to really nail them down on things like okay you're saying about a handful of chopped onions well do you mean a cup do you mean a, a, a medium onion do you mean a yellow onion a red onion a white onion and it, it gets as specific as that um i know that um chefs will sometimes roll their eyes about how a lot of cookbooks want or most cookbooks actually want measurements in cups or tablespoons or teaspoons and and cooks and especially pastry chefs go by grams yeah and i've had some of them say to me especially the pastry chefs can we please include the measurements in grams because they're really about precision and if you really want to do cakes and especially breads the way that a recipe is intended you, you need to measure by weight and a lot of publishers 
don't want to do that or don't want to add both measurements because it takes up more space. And so you kind of have to just work with the chef and say, look, I know this is the way you do it at the restaurant and probably the way you do it at home, but most people, unfortunately, either don't like to measure with a scale or they don't even have a scale at home. So that's why we need to include it in these types of measurements instead. Um, so there's a lot of that, a lot of translating into different measurements. And also sometimes chefs will just take what they do at the restaurant and scale it down. And that doesn't always work like Say you're making a dish for a hundred people normally and you try and get it down to four servings. Um, there were a couple of times in my last cookbook where I'd had a, had a friend testing a recipe and they'd tell me, oh, this came out great, but we had about six cups of sauce left over. <laughs> and so I'd have to go back to the chef and say, okay, we need to cut this down by this much and are you okay with this? And do you want to help me do it or... Do you want us to just try and figure it out? No. That's, oh my God, I can't imagine that. Just the whole, all the math involved there must be maddening. <laughs> I think I, I had one of my friends test quite a few of the baking recipes in my last book because she loves to bake and she's up for a challenge. So I gave her all the ones that had to be translated from gram measurements. And I thought at one point she was gonna kill me, but she was a good sport about it. <laughs> I, um, I wanted to ask you about your cookbooks, the San Francisco Chef's Table and the East Bay Cooks uh, and what the writing process were like for the books. I know the East Bay Cooks, came out um, right at the edge of quarantine, and, but it got good reviews. I read um, on one of the reviews said the East Bay Cooks was both a cookbook and restaurant guide in one, which is really great praise. Can you tell me about the process for these and how quarantine affected your release for the East Bay Cooks? I always tell people never ignore your inbox because you just never know what's going to show up. So both these opportunities just arise from somebody, either a publisher or somebody working with the publisher, reaching out to me in emails saying, we have this opportunity for a book, would you be interested? And that sort of set the wheels in motion of me talking to them and then joining with them. So San Francisco Chef's Table came out, was my first book, and then East Bay Cooks um, came out as my second book and they were done by two different publishers. Um, so East Bay Cooks, they, um, it is a publishing house out of Canada and they have done a ton of regional cookbooks like this throughout Canada. There's Vancouver Cooks, Edmonton Cooks, Toronto Cooks, and they had such great success with those. They decided, let's try doing these in the U.S. So the East Bay one was, I think, the third book that they actually did. There's been subsequently a few more. And um, I, I cannot say enough about how wonderful it was working with them. I mean, it was definitely a ton of work and a huge process, I think. Um, so I had to get a minimum of 40 restaurants to come on board for this. And it was not always an easy task because this publishing house, because of their business model, they require a buy-in from the restaurants, meaning that if 
you want to be featured in the book, you have to purchase a hundred of the books at wholesale price, but then you can sell the books at whole at retail price, which is twice the amount, or you can use them however you like, like gifts for VIP customers, or let's say you do a special wine dinner and you want to do a goodie bag at the end and have the books part of that package. So it works really well in, in terms of that. But of course, for some smaller restaurants, you know, and, and I'm talking pre-pandemic here, who are basically just making it, it's it's an ass because it's, you know, not a huge amount of money, but if you are just barely breaking even or barely making a profit, it's something extra that you have to tack on and, and not everyone's able to do that, unfortunately. But um, I, you know, I had to convince some chefs, some came on board right away. Others were like, I don't know about this. Um, let me think about it. And they would think and think and think. It would take weeks sometimes. And I would try and answer questions and try and convince them that this is going to be really fun and really great. And the way we did the photo shoot, which was different from my other book with the other publishing house, was very, um, for me, it was unusual. So instead of uh, they hire a local photographer, and in this case, it was Eva Kalenko out of Marin County, and she is amazing. I, I can't say enough about how lucky I was to have someone with her talent to work on this book. So we shot the, the portrait shots of the chefs and their dishes at a photo studio in Berkeley. And the chefs all had to sign up for a day and time that they would bring their dish and themselves to this location during a, a one week span. And at the photo shoot, um, Eva was kind enough to have sort of tacked on the wall all the shots that she really liked or was intending to use in the book. So people, the minute they walked into the studio could sort of see what the book was forming to look like. And after getting their photos taken and whatnot, I cannot tell you how many chefs came up to me at the end of that and said, thank you so much for asking me to be a part of this. And sometimes I just wanted to look at them and say, oh my God, you know, I had to convince you and I can't believe, you know, how hard it was to get you to do this. And now you're just like over the moon about it. So it was, it was sort of a, a, a funny juxtaposition and reactions. But uh, like I myself, as the first time I held the first copy of the book in my hand, I was like shaking because it just came out so beautiful and just more impressive than I ever could have imagined. Um, it's super stylish and contemporary looking if people have not seen it yet. It's, uh, it's a compilation of 41 chefs and restaurants in the East Bay. And I think the look of it is just so cool because the portrait shots are all in black and white and then the food shots are all in color. And um, each restaurant has a chapter devoted to them and their story and then two of their signature recipes. So they, um, figure one was the publisher and as I mentioned, they were just incredible to work with the, the level of editing. It went through not only the editors I worked with directly, but then 
a copy editor and a proofreader, it was just so impressive how how they just picked everything apart. Uh, sometimes it drove me crazy, of course, but other times I thought, wow, this is a really impressive. I, you know, I'll give you an example. There was a, a restaurant in Oakland that uh, I wrote uh, was a favorite of the Warriors. This is back when they were still based in Oakland. Yeah. And I mentioned that uh, one of the Warriors players, Kevin Durant, loved this place especially. And then a copy editor came back to me and said, you know, I was just looking this up and I realized he's a free agent. We're not sure, right, that he's gonna still be on the team when this book comes out. So maybe we shouldn't mention him specifically. And lo and behold, he wasn't part of the team anymore when the book came out. So that to me was very impressive that they went to such lengths to make sure everything was so accurate. Yeah, I um, imagine like they're very used to looking into the future like newspapers are and always trying to figure out when things- Exactly, happen. yeah. And in answer to the second part of your question, yeah, the book came out September of 2019 and we were doing a lot of events, um, a lot of the restaurants, would get together and have sort of a joint signing with some of the other restaurants in the book. It was really fun. So you'd have maybe four or five chefs at one of the restaurants there to sign books for people. And then maybe a week later, one of the other restaurants would have another four or five chefs at their place and they would also do signings. So when COVID hit, um, that all kind of stopped. There were a few events on the calendar there that of course, had to be canceled because nobody knew what was going to happen right. and who knew if this was going to be safe or not. So those all kind of fell by the wayside, which was kind of a shame. And then to top it all off, I was actually starting to write the sister book to that one, which is Silicon Valley Cooks, which I was so excited about. In fact, it started writing a couple chapters. I think we tested maybe five recipes and then COVID hit. And my publisher said, okay, we got to put a halt to this because who knows which of these restaurants is going to survive this. And we don't want to have a book touting all these restaurants that no longer exist. So that book is still on hold and we're kind of hoping that maybe next year we can start work on it. But really a, a lot depends on COVID and what happens with the situation that in unfortunately starting to go in the direction we don't want so yeah i know it's very scary right now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor this episode is brought to you by reese's peanut butter cups in breaking news leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate however it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. And now let's return to our program. Many cities in the United States have a kind of flavor, like Texas, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of maybe overplaying it, but like Texas has barbecue, Maine has lobster. Um, what is your idea of what represents the East Bay or, or in San Francisco, as far as our food, our cuisine goes? 
Well, definitely farm to table, organic, sustainable. I think uh, Alice Waters uh, set the tone a long, long time ago. That's since sort of become part of our fabric here. You know, there's hardly a restaurant that you can go to these days that doesn't try and touts that they get things from a small farm that's local or they buy only in season or their menu changes four times or more a year. So definitely that aspect. Um, I would also say um, the Bay Area is definitely, we're, we're very lucky to be such a hotbed of any and every ethnic cuisine you can imagine. I know when uh, before COVID, whenever I had visitors coming into town, I would always definitely take them to at least one or two ethnic restaurants, uh, especially Vietnamese, because um, you know, we have such a huge um, wealth of incredible mom and pop and then more upscale kind of modern Vietnamese restaurants here. Uh, now also the same for Korean restaurants. Um, again, little family-run ones to very elevated ones. And you, you don't find that um, and other parts of the country, and if you do, definitely not in the numbers that we have here. And so we're, I think that um, we're lucky that we have such a melting pot of people and so many of them have chosen to express themselves and their culture and their livelihood in the form of food and hospitality. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of people that have moved out of the Bay Area for, you know, reasons of affordability. And the one thing I hear all the time is, I miss the food in the Bay Area. I used to be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you're just not going to get that in other places. I mean, it may be cheaper to live, but it's one of the reasons why I stay in the Bay Area. I mean, I know the cornucopia of foods here. I can get Russian, Vietnamese, Korean, amazing different regions of India just the diversity of food here, just within like a small area. I mean, Oakland itself is a microcosm. Mm -hmm. You get such amazing things there. It's just incredible. Um, so over the years, you know, since I was in my 20s, I remember when going out was basically just, it was, if you went out, it was a restaurant, a sit-down restaurant, that was it. But now we got, we got food trucks, we got all kinds of takeout, we got DoorDash, we got really advanced takeout where they give you instructions like pizza places that are like, when you get home, do this and then put the toppings on, you know, we have all kinds of diversity with our options now. How do you think that's changed the face of eating out in America? I think the pandemic really changed things. I mean, you had restaurants who never done takeout before and never would consider doing it because it just it didn't either fit in with their style or their business plans all pivoting to doing that because they had to uh, i remember talking to the chef at uh, flea street cafe in menlo park and he was saying they never did takeout before and it was something that they never necessarily wanted to do because like so many chefs they feel like i cook the food I serve it to you within a minute and that's the way it should be. It's, it's presented on a beautiful plate in the manner that I want it to be seen and enjoyed. Whereas you put it in a takeout container and it's jostled in your backseat or your trunk. And by the time you get it home, it's lukewarm and it looks maybe a little sad. Yeah. And then 
you do the awful thing of sticking it in the microwave <laughs> to warm it up, which probably breaks many a chef's heart. So I think though that, you know, good and bad, it, it, it opens up more ways for us to enjoy restaurant food, as you mentioned. And maybe it also showed chefs that uh, there are other revenue opportunities. There are other ways we can present our food if we have the space, if we have the audience, if we have the opportunity to do so. Um, you know, the chef at Fleet Street was telling me that his um, proprietor would tell him, okay, why don't you cook this fish dish, stick it in a container, and just set it off in the corner for about 15 minutes and then go taste it and see is it still good is it overcooked is it just horrible looking or what 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 is it do we you know is this something that we can actually even offer for takeout or should we just yank this dish and he told me that one of the things they learned was that they needed to cook all their proteins less because when you put it in a box and seal it, it continues to cook wow. and within the heat of that container. And so if let's say you cooked a fish fully cooked through, by the time it sat in that container and then you finally opened it at your house, it would have been well done. The same with meat. So they learned that they need to undercook most things so that when you get it home, it is at the optimum level that it should be. And I think that, um, you know, it was, some people enjoyed sort of the interactive uh, menus that some chefs offered for takeout. Uh, you mentioned how, you know, there are some places that were designed kind of, okay, we cook it, you take it home, you just eat it. And others, had everything sort of labeled and they give you directions. And I know like Zola in Palo Alto, they frowned upon you using a microwave. They put everything in sort of aluminum containers and told you put it in the oven. And you know, even most of us are like, oh my God, I got to turn on the oven, heat up the house. And I did that myself, but I, I did it. And I said, you know what? It comes out so much better this way. The potatoes come out with that crispy crust. The, the stews are cooked all the, are, are warmed all the way through instead of in a microwave where you have some places where it's hot in the dish and other places where it's kind of only warm. Um, so things come out better. And I think sometimes it also adds to the fun because people can sort of pretend at home like they're creating this on their own or sort of interacting vicariously with the chef or restaurant by putting the finishing touches on something. Yeah. The one thing that bring this brings to mind is um, there's a podcast I listen to with the restaurant critic, Jeremy Rayner in England. And he often does a podcast where he orders takeout during the pandemic for him and somebody else and they get it at home and they have to prepare it. And, Sometimes it's people that don't really know how to cook. So they're having to follow the chef's instructions. And it's kind of funny and comical to listen to these people reading the instructions and, <laughs> and they, they enjoy the meal, but it's just, it's neat to kind of see them kind of like the rest of us going through the same thing in solidarity. Yeah, you're like, okay, this sauce, do you think it goes with this dish? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or There's some extraneous garnish here. What do I do with this? Yeah. <laughs> Where do I put the cilantro? 
You've given live cooking classes at Macy's and also you wrote recently about cooking schools that are done online to provide anyone interested in food to make things with online instruction. And sometimes the schools will send the people the food and then they'll make it online. Mm -hmm. uh, how did quarantine change cooking instruction uh, in your experience? Well, definitely the in-person instruction yeah. stopped for, I think, almost everyone for some point or another. And then I know as things sort of eased up, some of the cooking schools uh, went back to allowing in-person instruction, but many of them were only for professional students who were getting degrees instead of offering recreational classes like they used to for the lay public. So I think that again, things became more creative for schools like that. Um, yeah, I did a story for the Knob Hill Gazette trying out a series of classes online um, a few months back when things were still very much shut down. And it was kind of fun to sort of scope out the, the range of classes. Some were pairings where they would send you the cheese and you would taste along on a Zoom class with other people and the instructors. Others were more, much more involved where you got the recipes ahead of time and then you got this huge shopping list and you had to go buy all the ingredients. And then before the class started, you had to prep everything, chop things or uh, measure out certain items to get everything ready. So it was, it was kind of fun to sort of see how that worked out. Um, you know, some of the classes were large, others small, where it was very easy to get very individual attention, which was nice. So I thought it was a lot of fun. I mean, I made my very first souffle online in a class and uh, everyone had to show it up on the screen. And thankfully mine actually looked decent. So <laughs> I was happy about that. Yeah, I, I personally am looking to do that soon because I'm I've, writing this, and, and getting prepared to talk to you has made me think a lot about that. And looking at some of these classes online, I'm like, I really want to do this. I really could use some instruction. Like I've never made a souffle before and it would be kind of nice to have somebody giving me some pointers and like, I've never made croissants and done some things mm -hmm. um, like that. So having somebody go along with you would be kind of nice having a mentor. Yeah. I mean, ideally it'd be wonderful to be in the same room with the instructor. So you could just yeah. peer over and look at what they're doing, but it actually worked really well on zoom. I would say, um, you know, the, the one souffle class I took through 18 reasons up in San Francisco, it was, uh, they limit their class to 12. Yeah. So again, like I said, you get a lot of individual attention. If you have any kind of questions, you just have to unmute or raise your hand and the instructor will answer very specifically. Um, and especially with something like a souffle or like you're saying a, a croissant, so much of it depends on technique and texture. And you kind of think, oh my God, that might be kind of hard to do just online. Yeah. But um, like for instance, our answer was really great because you're like thinking, well, how long do I beat these egg whites? Because that's such, such a key ingredient and you really have to get the texture right in order to get the souffle to rise and yeah. to be pillowy and soft, not dry. And so she was really good about saying, well, you want it to be like this and you hold up the ball and it doesn't fall out. Then you know you have a good texture, but you don't want it so dry that it looks like it's starting to break apart. 
and that really helped. I think uh, most of us in that class had never made a souffle before, and I, I would say all of us came away much more confident and saying, wow, I'm gonna do this next time I invite someone over, or I'm gonna do this more often and make souffles. Yeah, I wanna get into that. That's something I wanna, I think I might even be fun to do with my wife. Um, I've seen a lot of couples do these classes online and it can be- Yeah, there were a couple couples in that particular class. What food trends have you seen in the Bay Area that you're excited about currently? Well, definitely Korean is, uh, seems like all sorts of, um, especially high-end Korean and say Filipino cuisine also definitely yes. making um, a rise in artisan um, purveyors providing the raw ingredients and specialty produce. And then you have chefs who used to maybe work for someone else now branching out on their own and sort of drawing from their own family histories and cultural touchstones to make food that's very personable, uh, personal and very, um, very different in the sense that um, maybe it's based on something that they grew up with, but then they're using ingredients that they're getting locally that are just top notch. So I think that's very exciting. Um, I also think that, um, again, with the advent of delivery and everyone sort of getting used to getting things delivered or going to pick up things that we're just seeing more things available. I mean, I live in the South Bay in Silicon Valley and it's a hike to go to the East Bay or to Napa to get things, but now you're seeing, um, especially a few months ago during pandemic in full force, some of these places doing pop-ups in different parts of the Bay Area because they recognize that people are not traveling as much for work or visiting people like they used to. So maybe they're not getting up to Napa or they're not getting up to San Francisco as often as they used to. So they're going to bring what they do to you. Um, so I think it was really fun, like places like Bee Patisserie in San Francisco doing pop-ups in the East Bay or in other parts of San Francisco or even down on the peninsula because they knew that people rightly so adore their Queen Amons and were missing them, but just didn't feel like they could spare the time to drive up to San Francisco all the time for them like they used to. Yeah, I get a few emails from pop-ups. I, I work close to Oakland, so I'll get these emails and I'm like, oh, I'm so excited. I'm like, I can get a really great fried chicken sandwich today. Or I can, you know, I, I can go buy this uh, pan dulce today. So it's like really nice because I like helping people, you know, that, that do the pop-ups because a lot of times uh -huh. they're doing it out of their home. And it's really fun to be able to like get those little tickles in your email and you're like, oh, it's so exciting, you know. And the other interesting part is that a lot of restaurants or bars are also hosting pop-ups. Nice. So other businesses to sort of, it's twofold to, to draw more visitors and customers to their area, but also to help these up and coming uh, new food businesses to have a place to distribute what they're making. Uh, for instance, uh, one of my favorite Italian restaurants, Vina Anateca in Palo Alto, they started having um, the wonderful cheesecake maker, Bascu. Uh, 
bake out of there and sell cheesecakes. And then for a while, one of my other uh, favorite bakers, um, Love for Butter, was doing pop-ups there every weekend. So his croissants and just really inventive Queen Amans and cakes were being available there. Um, so it's a, it's a way for um, restaurants to bring more excitement to people so that they don't forget about them and for them to sort of reinforce their toehold in the community by saying, um, you know, we know these are hard times and we're not operating necessarily as normal as we used to, but we are doing this. And on top of that, you can come discover this, that, and the other while you're here. I love the collaboration of this. this all this collaboration mm -hmm. is just beautiful. Because it's just it, people are taking something that's not great and they're making you know great stuff out of it. This is wonderful. Exactly. Now I, I read in your bio that you're very fond of cookies. What are <laughs> some of the best bakeries that you think that you could recommend in the Bay Area that make great cookies? Oh my gosh! Well, I already mentioned Bee Patisserie. I mean, their Queen of Mons are incredible, but they also do these totally decadent chocolate chunk cookies mm. that are probably as big as your entire hand. <laughs> oh, they're just so good. Um, wow. Um, those are among my favorites. And then I also bake a lot myself, probably more than I should. My husband's always telling me, you got to rein this in. You can't keep doing this every weekend. We're all going to gain like 50 pounds. So, but I, I find that uh, it's my stress relief. So uh, you've probably heard of, uh, the term procrastinating, and I am yep. very much guilty of that. I could Me be too. having deadlines for stories that need to be written, but I'll just sort of take a deep breath and say, you know what? I'm just going to go bake some cookies right now because I just need to. So <laughs> I, I agree. I, I know it's funny because my wife will sometimes say, maybe you should rein in the baking, but then she's like, can you make me some cookies? So it's <laughs> exactly. Well, also, let's see, I also love Bouchon Bakery up in Yonville, Thomas Kimball's oh, place, because yeah. of the cookies there. Um, I can never go there and not have a Nutter Butter cookie, yeah. um, which is two peanut butter cookies in a sandwich with this incredible peanut butter cream smeared on the inside of it. It's just addictive. I got his cookbook um, for Father's Day this year, and it's just... Oh, it, I mean, number one, it's massive. It's a coffee Gorgeous, table. too, oh, yeah. It's so beautifully photographed and written. It's just, it's a delight. I love it so much. Have you made anything from it? Not yet. I'm a little intimidated, I have to admit. Um, <laughs> even just the simple things like scones and cookies, it's very precise. But yes. I'm, I'm making some kind of like, I'm making some kind of like deals with myself to break into it, to face the fear and like do it. Like I really want to try puff pastry and croissants. I've never done it before and I'm terrified. It's my like Mount Everest, but I'll get there this year, I think. Good for you. Cause that's definitely a complicated process. Yeah. But if I can, you know, do it and get it, I mean, I'll feel, I'll feel accomplished. Now, what about you? What do you like to cook at home? I know that you said you like to do baking, but what else do you like to cook? Well, I, I get a lot of cookbooks uh, solicited to me and I cook out of them all the time and blog about them on my blog, Food Gal. 
and um, some of them are baking books, some are not. Um, they, you know, run the gamut, and I'm always eager to try my hand at every cuisine from Italian to Japanese to Persian, you name it. It's always fun. Um, I do like baking a lot. Um, I, you're probably someone who likes to do more complicated baking, whereas I probably will veer more towards something that is doable without any stress. Like I love cookies for that one reason, which is they're in, infinitely doable. And I think they're just the perfect size to satisfy, you know, one cookie and you're happy as can be. Um, I like doing cakes, but I don't like doing these very elaborate eight layer cakes with yeah. fondant and then sponge sugar over the top. That's just not me, um, but more power to people who do that. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like what I like. Fondant is from the devil. I've tried working with that <laughs> last year. It is one of the toughest things to work with for me. I hate working with it. It's it doesn't so taste that great either. No, it, it's crappy. It's not yeah. that I don't understand the big thrill. That's one thing when I um, when I got married and of course, you know, so many wedding cakes are done up in fondant. I was like, nope, no fondant on my wedding <laughs> I made one of my kids a hammerhead shark uh, cake last year. Wow. And it looked okay. Okay, it looked okay, but the one thing about it was that nobody wanted to eat it because everybody was tasting the fondant and going, ew. Oh no. <laughs> They, they ate around the cake. They like Did they, they leave all the, the outside. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we threw away all this like grayish blue. Oh no. <laughs> I wonder if your son could have some fun pretending it's Play-Doh and just play yeah. with it. It's year. about the same, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um now you say that you get a lot of uh, cookbooks from people um, to kind of review. Do you um, recommend any new and upcoming cookbook authors right now? Oh my gosh. Um, what books am I loving lately? Um, I have to say I love Hetty McKinnon's new cookbook. I think it's called To Asia With Love. It's... Um, she used to live in Australia for a long time and she's half Chinese and now she lives in New York and I know this is like her third cookbook but she has several cookbooks out there and um, it's just it's very imaginative um, and it's very doable by a home cook and the one thing that really struck me was so I I, whenever I get a new cookbook in the mail, I just go through it and start putting post-it notes on things that look interesting that I might want to try. And I filled that book with post-it notes. And it wasn't until I got to the very end that it dawned on me, oh my God, is this a vegetarian cookbook? And it was. Nice. I, I'm a total carnivore. I mean, I, I can eat vegetarian and I often do, you know, for most of the day or for a couple of days a week. My husband is a total carnivore who people who know me or him know that his nickname is Meat Boy. So that tells you right there his love for. Oh, is that why you designed the shirt? You have the shirt that's for, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's why. You know, it was sort of shocking at first, like, wow, this is vegetarian. Because for someone who is not necessarily 
adhering to a vegetarian diet to see all these recipes that are just so appealing that you just want to make right then and there is so surprising to realize at the end of it oh my gosh oh yeah there's no chicken or no fish or anything like this and these are all asian recipes that you would expect oh there's no pork right because yeah. <laughs> of course chinese people love pork so i i love her recipe i've made i love her cookbook i've made probably three or four of her recipes and they all work really well and they're delicious and the ingredients are things that um, you easily have at home or you can just make a trip to the Asian market or even sometimes Whole Foods, their international section or their regular section will carry the things that you would need. So I love that. Um, another book that I was just raving about on my blog, which is actually not necessarily a full-on cookbook it's more of a memoir with a few recipes here and there is the book uh, the black white and the gray which is about the gray restaurant in savannah which has this really interesting history it used to be a segregated greyhound bus depot oh wow that, yeah in you know the deep south so this um, restaurateur, and he, he was a, he's a businessman, entrepreneur, who never opened a restaurant before, never had any restaurant experience. Oh, wow. But he saw this building, and you know, he lived in this area, and he thought, wow, this would be incredible to turn into a restaurant. And so he ended up teaming, he's white, he ended up teaming with a black female chef from New York who had, she'd worked at Prunes, so she's worked at really good places, but she'd never opened her own restaurant before. And the really cool part of the way the book is designed is that her part of the book, her, her paragraphs are in bold type and his are in regular type. And they're interspersed one after the other in the chapters. So if they're talking about something that happened, you get her version or her insight, as well as his at the very same time, as oh, if you were there in the room with them while they were talking. But of course, you're just reading this on the page. But it's, I just loved it because they're so honest in what they say about how it was such a difficult project to bring to life for so many reasons. First, because of what the, the condition of the building was, was in, which was horrible. You know, they had to really uh, do so much work to it, and yet at the same time wanted to preserve some of the architectural details. And on one hand, they also wanted to pay tribute to the past there, but in a way that people could learn from it. Um, and not necessarily erase it, but to give it context. And um, the other aspect was just the two of them sometimes learning how to communicate with one another because you hear you had someone who is black with a very different history from someone who's white with another quite different background and history coming together on a project that was very overwhelming at times and so for the two of them to learn how to work together and to understand each other and to understand how 
race and history and culture played into it, which is fascinating. I mean, I cannot re recommend that book enough. It was one of those books that um, I just couldn't put down. I'm getting it today. That sounds, you've it's sold it. great. Me. Yeah. I mean, I wish, I mean, I've been um, to Savannah, Savannah only once, and unfortunately it was before that restaurant opened, but I, if, if we ever can travel like we used to, I'd love to finally go there and actually see this place in person. It's, uh, it's also featured on Netflix's, uh, I believe, the Chef's Table series that they do. Oh, yeah, there yeah. is an episode on this restaurant, The Gray. Oh, wow. That's, those sound great. Yeah, I was thinking about how so many vegetarian cookbook authors are making vegetarian food seem appealing. I just interviewed a vegetarian author, and she... And I, she was younger, and I said, you know, back in the 70s, uh, vegetarian food really sucked, but now, <laughs> now some of you, you know, people are making stuff that you don't even care. I mean, you could go to a vegetarian restaurant now. It doesn't really even matter because you, you're going to have a good meal. You're not going to suffer. It's not wearing a hair shirt culinarily. You're, <laughs> you're, you're having a great time. I mean, Oakland has some great uh, vegetarian restaurants that I would eat in any of them, and I mm -hmm. wouldn't hesitate, you know. Well, it's definitely come a long way from the days of it being sort of hippie food yeah. with um, um, all these sort of mysterious gray looking things on yeah. the plate. Um, yeah, it, this, it's so fascinating to see how people have taken it into so many different global interpretations now and, and just adding so much more flavor and character. Yeah. And a lot of times, yeah, even if you are a dead-on carnivore, you don't even miss it a lot of times because the flavor is just just so incredible. I mean, I was just at uh, Palette Tea Garden, the dim sum restaurant in San Mateo, and one of, um, I was with two other people, and I think one of our favorite dishes was the Mapo Tofu, which was oh, yeah. done with impossible meat crumbles instead oh. of pork or beef like it normally is. Uh -huh. It was probably one of the best renditions of that dish I've ever had. Oh, I love and that. I would go back there just for that again. <laughs> nice. That's wonderful. Okay, so I want to ask you the last question. Mm -hmm. And it's, if you could invite up to 10 people from history or current time to- Oh my God. <laughs> who would you invite and what would you serve? <gasps> Whoa, okay. Um, I don't know if I can think of 10 off the top of my head. And if I don't mention everyone who knows me, hopefully you will forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Probably the first three are easy in a way because uh, unfortunately, they're no longer with us. Mm -hmm. And I adore each of these people so much and wish so much their presence and their wisdom was still with us now. Um, first, of course, Anthony Bourdain. Oh my God, yes. Who, um, I haven't yet seen his documentary. I really would love to and hopefully soon. Um, but I had the pleasure of meeting him only once. And he, just like you used to see on those shows, just, uh, so witty and so on point with his observations and so snarky and just fascinating to share a room with or a table and how could you not want him at a dinner party i mean yeah. He's the, the stories he could tell the opinions he would give would just be entertainment in itself um 
Likewise, Jonathan Gold, uh, the former uh, dearly departed LA Times restaurant critic who, I mean, thanks to him, we know about so many amazing ethnic restaurants, hole in the walls that we probably never would have known about before. Um, he really shone a light on these places and, and just the passions that these people operating these restaurants have and the love that they share on the plate. And we're so lucky that his reviews still live on on the internet and we can refer to them. But um, what an amazing presence he was and the work that he did was just so thoughtful and just so um, so needed you know in a world where again we we are bombarded by um, so much information but you always knew that if he liked a place that it was worth trying and the other person who's no longer with us that i would love to have at the table julia child oh god um, yes i had the pleasure of also meeting her a couple times interviewing oh, wow. a couple times and i think she was the only person i mean i've interviewed so many people over the years but interviewing her for the first time in person, I could tell my voice was shaking because I was like, oh my God, it's Julia Child. <laughs> and I still remember when I was at the Mercury News and in my cubicle and I, had, I was on a phone interview with her from her house in Montecito. And uh, she was a little hard of hearing at the time. So I was kind of having to shout into the yeah. phone. And by the time I was done, there were probably six of my colleagues who sat nearby me came over to my desk and said, oh my God, were you just talking to Julia Child? I mean, they were just like, oh, that's so incredible. <laughs> I mean, that's the power she had is she's, she was that rare combination of larger than life, but down to earth as it gets. Um, just someone who was so delighted by everything and was so, um, so funny in her opinions. And I just love how much she um, enjoyed butter and cream and uh, I still, tell people these days when they're always fretting about their diets and whatnot, I say, go by what Julia Child's philosophy was, which was enjoy everything just in moderation. Absolutely. And the next person, maybe a little more out in left field, um, but I'll explain why. So the other person I would have at my table would be Chef Rob Lamb, uh, Pearl Wine Bar in Oakland, and Lily's on Clement in San Francisco. He is the most hilarious person I know. I mean, every conversation I have with him, even his emails or his Instagram comments, I'm just rolling on the floor in laughter. And so he's someone I would have to have there because how could you not, right? Especially when you get a little wine going and stuff. <laughs> And then just selfishly, I would also invite the bakers from Arsicult Bakery, Bee Patisserie, Love for Butter, and a bunch of other bakeries that I love because I would hope that they would bring dessert. <laughs> That's very smart. That's wonderful. And what would I serve? I don't know. Something just kind of homey and good. I don't know if it would be... 
a particular cuisine or not. Um, I don't know, hey, maybe I might make my mom's tomato beef chow mein, which everybody seems to just adore, especially when they come across it online, the recipe. It's, it's, it's so funny how that particular recipe has touched so many people. I get emails to this day and I, I wrote that recipe when my mom was still alive and that was years ago. And they just reminisce about how they used to have this dish in Chinatown and they can't find it anywhere else now because it's, it's sort of this Cantonese American dish that um, only very old school restaurants, Chinese restaurants would serve. And um, my mom would make this for us regularly when I was a kid. And um, when I was at the Mercury News, um, I finally made her write it down when I read, I did a Mother's Day story on her and um, nice. like all moms, she was like, oh no, you're not gonna have a photographer come by, are you? Oh, oh my God, you want me to measure everything? I just don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I am so glad that uh, I nudged her to do this. And if any, if I could do anything else again, and I tell people this all the time, get your parents, get your grandparents, get your great aunts, whoever, to write down the recipe that you love. Because the day will come that they're not there anymore to make it for you. And you are going to miss it sorely and wish that you could recreate it. Yeah, that's very true. I I really wish I could go back and ask my grandmother how she made some things because mm -hmm. she made a lot of Southern specialties that she made very unique. And I don't know what she did. I'd love to just talk to her about it and find out her POV on it, but we never think of these things until- And then when you try and do it yourself, you're close. Yeah. But there's just something not right or something's missing and you just have no idea what it is. Yeah, she made this, uh, it was fried okra with green tomatoes. And I'd never oh. heard anybody uh -huh. else do that, but she did it, it had cornmeal and it sounds weird, but it was, everybody loved it. It was really odd. Have you tried to make it? No, I'm a little intimidated by it. Oh, I, you should try just to see yeah. if you could come close. Well, I have both in my garden. I definitely could do well, it. Well, there you go. It's the time right now, too. Well, thank you very much for talking to me on this podcast. I'm really honored to have you here. And it has been just wonderful hearing you talk about some of your experiences. Well, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun for me. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Carolyn Jung, Food Gal, as much as I did recording it. I was very happy to get a chance to talk to her, and I was so over the moon uh, to get to discuss so many topics that are dear to my heart with her. Please tune in next week, where you'll hear me talk to Melissa Matthews, who's also a medium writer as well, and she and I talked about food and cooking, and I found out that she is also, in addition to being a food writer, she is also a children's book author. Uh, I really had a great conversation with her, so please tune in next week. Until then, stay cooking.